0: I'm excited to be here with all of you for, uh, I guess this is my first official sermon uh, here at, at California EC Church, so that's good to be here. Uh, and I want to start off this morning with a question. Uh, maybe this is a weird question, <laughs> so hopefully this doesn't catch you too off guard. Uh, have you ever been kicked out of somewhere? You don't, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to tell us any stories. Uh, just, just think in, in your mind if if you've ever been kicked out of somewhere, maybe um, if you back in some rebellious teenage years, if you had those. Uh, <laughs> I see one hand back there. I won't ask you to share. Don't worry. Um, maybe maybe you can tell me the story later. I'd love to hear it. Um, but I think, and maybe TV makes this seem more common than it actually is. Right? We think about uh, you know. Some young kids who go into maybe a restaurant or somewhere else and they, they cause some trouble and then the, the big burly security guard kind of grabs him by the neck and, and tosses him out. Um, and so uh, I can't remember ever being kicked out of somewhere, uh, but I do remember being chased off of someone's lawn as a kid. Uh, I don't know if my parents know this story, so hopefully this isn't too embarrassing for you guys. Um my friends and I, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, we used to like to go out at night and we'd go gallivanting around the neighborhood, uh, doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing. Um, and one night we went out and we were ding-dong ditching people's homes, uh, <laughs> which uh, looking back on now uh, was pretty silly. And so one night uh, we go out and... I was a pretty scared kid, so usually I wasn't the one who was actually ringing the doorbell. I was usually like off hiding somewhere behind a bush so that I wouldn't be seen. Uh, but I remember one time, one specific time, uh, my friends, they they got tired of me being the scaredy cat, so they made me go up and ring this this one house. And I swear, my finger was less than half an inch from the doorbell when the door swings open and a man yells at us to get lost. And, uh, man, we we ran as fast as we could off of that lawn. And I realized later that, you know, word must have gotten out into the neighborhood that, you know, some kids were going around, and so they must have seen us coming up their their lawn. And uh, so maybe you have a story of getting kicked out of somewhere, getting chased out of somewhere. Uh, But could you imagine being kicked out of an entire city not just a business not just someone's lawn but out of an entire city well that's exactly what happened to paul and silas in the city of thessalonica and they weren't uh, ding-dong ditching people's homes they were sharing the gospel with people and so today we'll be beginning a series in the book of first thessalonians and so I've titled that series, Love Motivated by Hope. And so that's what we'll be talking about over uh, the next couple of weeks as we move towards Advent. And so turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in front of you, either under the pew or uh, in the, the hymnal rack. And so 1 uh, Thessalonians, it's a New Testament book. Towards the back. So I'll give you a second to flip there. And so the passage that we'll be looking at this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. So one verse. That's all we're looking at. Uh, Let me read that for us. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you, and peace. And so I don't know about you, but I'm not entirely sure how to preach a sermon on that passage, uh, because it's very short. And so uh, if you would, just put a finger there, and then flip with me to Acts chapter 17. That's where we'll be spending most of our time together this morning. So Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, making you do a lot of flipping this morning. That's All right, let me pray for us and then we'll take a look at this passage. Father, this morning we come before you and we, we know that from your word there is life, there is wisdom to be gained. We know that this isn't just a story, uh, but this is a real event that happened. And God, as we look at this story, I pray that you would be honored and glorified, I pray that you would speak through me. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. All right, so if you're in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, I've split uh, this sermon up into three points. Uh, You can think of these as three lessons to be gained uh, from this sermon. The first point is how to share the gospel. In verses 1 through 3. The second point is one response to the gospel in verse 4. And the third point is another response to the gospel in verses 5 through 9. So let me read Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 3 for us. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So I'll stop reading there, and we'll pick up a little later on. And so our first section, our first point for this morning is how to share the gospel. And these first three verses serve as a pretty clear explanation of just how we do that. Paul and Silas have they've been traveling on their missionary journey. They've been spreading the gospel throughout the world. And in the chapter before this, in Acts chapter 16, Paul had been guided by the Holy Spirit away from Asia or Turkey and towards Macedonia or what is the area of Greece. And so arriving in Acts chapter 17, Paul and his friends, his traveling companions, they come to a city uh, and the city known as Thessalonica. And this is why we're looking at this passage in Acts today. Because before we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, we need to understand what happened in the city of Thessalonica. So this is kind of the, the background uh, before we look at that letter of the Thessalonians. And so at this time, the city of Thessalonica was growing. It was a city with a population of about 200,000 people, which you know, we think of, and that's, we, we don't think that's a lot of people, but back then that would have been a lot of people. And this city consisted of mostly Romans, Greeks, and Jews. It was the the home of sailors, travelers, immigrants. Thessalonica was home to a port and some highways. And so Thessalonica had a vibrant economy, and that made it one of the most influential cities of the day. Not far off from a New York or a Boston that we would think of today. And so because of Thessalonica's economic prosperity, with that came a spiritual poverty. Thessalonica was home to the Roman worship of Caesar, uh, Greek worship of gods in temples, and it was home to Jewish synagogues. And so Thessalonica, from what we know about it, was a lost city. But Paul and his missionary companions recognized that sometimes the darkest places provide the greatest opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine out into the world. And so Paul and Silas, they enter this city and their first act is to visit the synagogue. And it's actually an incredibly strategic move on Paul's part. He is doing or he's going directly to the place where people are seeking spiritual things. People at the synagogue, whether they were Jewish or Greek or Roman, they would have been searching for, for something. right? They, they would have been close if they were in a synagogue worshipping Yahweh. And Paul is taking his opportunity and going to the synagogue to take what they are looking for, to take their spiritual seeking, and to point them in the right direction. And so in sharing the gospel, we, taking advice from Paul, can meet people where they're at, right? We can go to where they're meeting, we can go to where they're already spiritual seeking, and we can seek to understand where they are coming from. And then we can take that and we can point them to Jesus. And note Paul's persistence here, right? On three Sabbath days, he went to the synagogue And the Sabbath only happened once a week, and so this is a three week endeavor. Right? Paul goes to the synagogue once, he goes to the synagogue again, and then another time goes to the synagogue. In sharing the gospel, it's if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Paul kept going back. He tried again, until people began to be convinced of the truth of the gospel, until they began to say, you know, that it's starting to make sense. And Paul's method for sharing the gospel was this. It says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so we read this today, and and we think of the Bible, right? But back then, it would have meant the Old Testament, Remember, Paul was in a Jewish synagogue and, and they didn't have the New Testament that we know of today. And so Paul would have opened up Old Testament scrolls. They would have been on scrolls at that time. And he would have reasoned with them from, that, from those scrolls, from the text that they would have already known. And we don't know what passages Paul used, but I imagine him using Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Where it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. An Old Testament passage clearly talking about the Messiah that was to come. And Paul, he didn't just beat people over the head with verses or with Bible facts. He helped them to connect the dots. The Bible Project, who uh, makes these uh, visual depictions of books of the Bible, uh, they have this quote that they say often. It goes like this. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. All parts of Scripture come together. They're not separate. They're part of a unified whole. And all of it, you can find Jesus in. And so Paul, when he would go into the synagogues, he would reason with them from the scriptures. He would point to the Old Testament passages and say, this was fulfilled in Jesus. And so in sharing the gospel, we use the scriptures as our source. And so finally, verse three says this, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. In sharing the gospel, we can use logic and reasoning. The gospel, not only is it true, but it makes sense. And Paul helped people to realize this. Right there, there were probably debates. You know, people would raise opposition or ask questions and Paul would, would reason with, he would explain to them, he would prove to them. This is where the practice of apologetics that we know of today would come in. And I just imagine Paul flipping through scrolls of passages that point to Jesus from the Old Testament and saying to people, look at this, read this, Think about this. This is talking about that man in Jerusalem who suffered and died on a cross. This says that he would die and rise again, and he did. And you can have eternal life in him. And Paul would say, I met him. I know him. And he loves me, and he loves you too. And Paul would say, I want you to know him just as I know him. In sharing the gospel, we point people to Jesus. We say, he is the Messiah that you have been looking for. He has salvation that only he can bring. And whatever it is in your life that that you are seeking, whatever it is in your life uh, that you uh, put your identity in, whatever it is in your life that uh, you find fulfillment in, take those things and put your faith in Jesus instead. And so using verses 1 through 3 as a guide for how to share the gospel, what would it look like for you to share the gospel in this way? Think about that for a second. If you followed the sequence that Paul lays out for us here, if you met people where they were at, if you reasoned with them from the scriptures, if you explained and proved that Christ was the Messiah, what would that look like? Imagine that. For a second, I know that we don't live in a city, right? We're talking about Thessalonica here. But these things, they, they still apply to us. Where in our community could you go to find people who are spiritually seeking? Maybe you already have a place in mind. Maybe you already go somewhere. Maybe you have people who, in your mind already, who are looking for something. Let me just say that serving in the community is a great way to do this. I haven't really gotten affiliated with CrossNet Ministries yet, but I've heard great things, and I think I can promise to you that uh, if you volunteer with them, you will find opportunities to have these conversations with people who are spiritually seeking And remember, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It took Paul three tries to convince people until they were persuaded to follow Jesus. And so could you reason with someone from the scriptures? If you were to go into a synagogue, do you know the storyline of the Bible? Could you tell someone else about it in order to point them to Christ? And could you explain and prove to someone the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection? Does the gospel make logical sense to you? And could you help others come to an understanding of it? I hope that all of our answers to these questions are yes. But if they're not, how can we as a church grow in equipping each other to do this work? All of us are capable of doing this. It's not just a story. We've all been given the Holy Spirit. We've all been gifted by God to do certain things. And all of us are called by God to do this, to share his son Jesus with the world. It's not just my job as the pastor. It's the job of every person in this room. Someone asked for prayer last week for revival in our country. I want to say yes and amen to that. But let's not just pray for revival. Let's be a part of it. If we want revival, this is the kind of work that we have to do. So let's move on to our next section for this morning. As we look at one response to the gospel, let me read verse four for us. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. I'll stop there. And so we read here that all of the work from Paul and Silas has paid off. Their persistence in meeting, their reasoning from the the scriptures, their sharing of the gospel, all of that combined to cause some people to be persuaded. And this isn't just one response to the gospel. This is the correct response, right? This proves that the gospel has the power to change people's lives, right? It wasn't that Paul and Silas just went into the synagogue with an empty message and it didn't work. But instead, these people, they hear the gospel, they respond, and they join Paul and Silas on their journey, They didn't just intellectually accept the gospel. They didn't just say that that makes sense, but their lives changed and their actions followed. And this means that Paul and Silas, they didn't just share the gospel and leave these people where they were, but they invited them to something. They invited them to be a part of something. They invited them to come along on this journey. And we too have a place to invite people, right, to our church, into our homes, to invite them into the life so they can see what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. And we see a few groups that are singled out here in this verse. Uh, This one isn't mentioned directly, but it's assumed that some Jews were converted if they were in a synagogue. A larger number of Greeks came to believe. And finally, not a few, but many of the leading women. And that last one is significant because in Thessalonica, women had a considerable amount of social and civic influence. And from just this short verse in verse four, we can gather a few things. The gospel has power to change lives across religious boundaries. Right, You had Greeks who worshipped the Greek gods. You had Romans who worshipped the Roman gods. And all of these people uh, came together to convert to following Jesus. We can also see that the gospel has power to change lives across cultural boundaries. Right? Greek culture was different from Roman culture. It was different from Jewish culture. And despite that, the gospel message still landed with different groups of people. And the gospel has power to change lives for both men and for women. This single verse is evidence of the fruit that can come from faithful gospel proclamation. And so here is our takeaway. There will always be some who hear the gospel and accept it. And those people, they're out there. The Holy Spirit is working in their hearts. God is working in their lives to help them to be receptive to the truth about Christ. So this morning, has this been your response to the gospel? Have you been persuaded of the truth about Jesus? If not, I would love to talk to you more about what that means. And if you have been persuaded, has your life truly been changed? Have you joined with other followers of Jesus to aid in the work of bringing the gospel to the nations? Let's move on to our final point for this morning as we look at another response to the gospel. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so if we just looked at the correct response to the gospel, if we just looked at people being persuaded of the truth of Jesus, then this is clearly the incorrect response to the gospel. The Jews become jealous of the work that Paul and Silas are doing. And the Jews devise a plot to stop them. And we can somewhat understand this response because obviously the Jews, they didn't want people to leave their faith to follow this Jesus who they themselves had rejected. But the Jews, their hearts are in the wrong place. For them, losing people meant losing power, influence, and money. And this is what led to their extreme response of violence against Jesus and his followers. It says that they take some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. Can you uh, can you just imagine this? You know, the the leaders of the Jewish religion uh, recruiting uh, some thugs to help them to drive the Christians out. Right. Seems a little ridiculous. And it is. uh, But we can imagine this, because we've seen this before. In Mark chapter 15, it says this, talking about Pilate. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Envy, jealousy, see the connection. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Not their first time stirring up a crowd, right? And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In the same way that the Jews had persecuted Jesus by stirring up a crowd, they sought to persecute Jesus' followers. Old Old habits really do die hard, don't they? And so this crowd could not find Paul and Silas, but they do find Jason, who they had been staying with, And they bring Jason and his brothers before the city authorities in a similar way that they had brought Jesus before Pilate. And they have three accusations against Jason and his brothers. First, they claim that Paul and Silas have turned the world upside down. Which, in a way, is somewhat true. Right? The movement of Christianity was, in fact, turning the world upside down. As Jesus said... In his kingdom, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, right? That's truly turning the world upside down, isn't it? But also, this claim from the Jewish leaders is false, right? The, the movement of Christianity, Christianity isn't just to turn the world upside down, it's to turn the world right side Christianity is a revolution, but it's a revolution seeking reconciliation. It's seeking to reconcile the relationship between God and his creation. And this is a good thing. Christianity is a good revolution, but not everyone sees it that way. They also claim that Jason has harbored these men, which, okay, that one's true, but it's not really breaking any laws. And they also claim that all of these people, Paul, Silas, Jason, all the companions, they were acting against the decrees of Caesar. They were saying that Jesus is the king. And we've heard that one before too. This is the same claim that the Jews used in their attempt to crucify Jesus. In Luke 23, it says this. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the clouds and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So the Jews, they're trying to accuse these followers of Jesus of treason against Caesar. And these men, they they did affirm that Jesus was the king. But Jesus' movement isn't against Rome. It's not against Caesar. It's against sin and death itself. Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly one. And Jesus, when talking about his kingdom, said this in John chapter 18. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so the city officials, they hear these claims. They're disturbed by them. And it's likely that they would have known about the unrest that happened in Jerusalem. They would have known the unrest that has happened as Paul and Silas have been traveling. And so in an attempt to quell the uproar, they forced Jason and his brother to pay or to post bond and they let them go. And in the next verse, verse 10, which we didn't read, Paul and Silas flee the city by night. And so here's our takeaway from this last point there will always be some who hear the gospel and reject it. And even further than that, there will always be some who actively work to oppose the gospel. Attempts to silence Jesus or his followers will never work. In fact, they only make Christianity grow even more. Persecution can be a blessing to the church because it gets the church moving. And the church always finds a miraculous way to thrive in the midst of it. I wish that I had included in here a story of the church in China. If you are at all familiar with the church in China, the more that the Chinese government seeks to shut down Churches, Christians, and the gospel, the more the church grows. And so when we go out to share the truth about Jesus, persecution will come. Jesus told his followers that in this world they would have trouble. But it's worth it when those willing to accept the truth are brought into the family of God. And so this is what happened in Thessalonica. This is the background for the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this story will help us as we journey through the rest of the book. Let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 as we close. Paul, Silvanus, who is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that despite the the troubles that we face in this life, despite the persecution that we may face, despite the difficulties and the fear that we often have of sharing the truth about Jesus, we thank you that you promise to always be with us, that you promise to work through us by your spirit. And so, God, I pray that Uh, For each and every person in this room, you would remind them they are called by you to share the love of Jesus with others. And so, God, may you give each person an opportunity to do that this week. And may we come back next week with praises and giving glory to you for the work that you have done in our lives. We know that this story isn't just a made-up story, but this is a real event that happened. Help us to know that this kind of thing can be a reality in our lives as well. God, may you just pour out your blessing on us as we continue uh, in this series and through this book. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.